Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. We are thankful that you're here this morning, and today we are beginning a new series of sermons as we look to God's Word, specifically uh, as it relates to children. Um, this month, especially here at Crosslink, there's a lot going on that's really made me think a great deal about children in recent days. Of course, today is family dedication as parents are making that commitment to the Lord. Just a few weeks is Father's Day, which is exciting and just around the corner. And then, of course, at the end of the month, beginning on June the 26th, we have Vacation Bible School here at Crosslink, which is a wonderful time for us to invite children and invite the community in to build relationships and to point them to Jesus. And all these things are wonderful. I remember even when I first came here in June of 2016, when the Lord called my family and I here, uh, we learned, for example, that there hadn't been Vacation Bible School uh, for many years. And uh, we were burdened about that because we know it's a very strategic opportunity for us to really point children to the Lord and to build relationships in the community. And so we're excited about that even this year to see how God's grown that. And I want to encourage you, if you've not already signed up to be a part of it and volunteering, or you haven't signed up your children, make sure that you do so because God's going to do some incredible things here at the end of the month. But with all of these things happening here in the month of June, my heart and my mind has been filled with thoughts about how God views children. So pastor, why is that very important? Well, the reality is today we live in a culture in which many people view children, unfortunately, almost like a nuisance. They can be a burden because they don't have the education or maybe the expertise or they don't have the experiences that we do. Perhaps we see them as just someone that drains resources, maybe a liability in some way. Unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world where evil is real and exists, there are some who even exploit children and use them for their selfish and sinful purposes. But the reality is God tells us very specific things about his perspective and his view of children. And today, I believe if we have that perspective and that view of children, it will radically impact our behavior towards them. Maybe you're here today and you would listen to that message and you would say, well, pastor, that doesn't really apply to me. I don't have children of my own yet. And yet every single one of us interact on some level with children. Or maybe you're here today and you'd say, well, Pastor Matt, I'm a grandparent. My kids are already grown and they're out of the house and they've already moved on. This doesn't apply to me. And yet, I believe what God begins to show us in this message and in many other messages to come in the coming weeks is this. Every single one of us have an opportunity to love children well and to minister to them well for the glory of God. Well, how do we do that? We do that by looking at biblical examples and instructions for what he has said. Today, we begin a new sermon series entitled, Instructions Included. Instructions Included. Now, when I think of that title, Instructions Included, my mind goes back to an illustration of many years ago when my wife and I began to have children. We had our firstborn child, and he was about six months old at this time, and, and I was hoping by six months he would be in a regular sleeping pattern and habit. 
I don't know if you've ever been a parent or not, but we were in that place where that was not happening for us. In fact, every single night he was up multiple times a night. And by the time he was about six months old, I was completely sleep deprived. It was then in my life that I learned to live off of about three to four hours of sleep and on a good night, five hours of sleep, okay? And I remember specifically one day as my son was born, I remember in that time that we were struggling to kind of find sleep. He was dealing with digestive issues and, and it was just a great challenge. And one day I sat down with a friend who, who is kind of a, a veteran of parenting, so to speak, and we began to talk about it. And I was just lamenting all these burdens and these challenges and I was tired and just kind of asking him, man, how in the world can I be a good husband and be a good father without any sleep when I feel like everything is getting on my nerves? How can this be? And I remember him looking at me and saying, you know, Matt, I'll tell you what, it's a shame that when they sent you home from the hospital, they didn't give you a manual for that, right? <laughs> and I listened to him. This guy was a guy who worked with his hands and he told me, he was being honest. He said, listen, I put together furniture and I put together appliances and we've got booklets and we've got instructions and we've got manuals and we've got details and we've got warranties and we know what to do and how to do it and we know what to do when something goes wrong. But when you left the hospital, you left with a car seat, a diaper bag, a lot of hopes and dreams, and no other insight of what to do. Well, I was like, well, aren't you a great encouragement? God bless you, right? <laughs> but the truth is, the more I've thought about that advice over the years, the more I've begun to realize, while he was being a bit funny and sharing the burden with me, the truth is, God is not silent on the subject of children. God is not silent on the subject of how we are to shepherd them and how we are to love them and how we are to protect them and how we are to serve them. God has not left us in the dark. In fact, God has given us examples and exhortations as instructions for how we are to care for and minister to children. So today, I wanna to ask you to take God's word and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter one as we see an Old Testament illustration of how we are to care for and minister to children. Whether you are a parent or not, we begin today by looking at the example found directly of a parent by the name of Hannah. And maybe you're here today and say, Pastor Matt, I don't have children yet or that's not been my situation in life. How does this apply to me? In this message and every other message, we're gonna see several biblical principles and practical actions that will encourage us and help us in our faith. Whether we have children or not, there is much that we can learn from the example found in 1 Samuel chapter one. It's a lengthy text. We're gonna read 1 Samuel chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two, verse two, but there's much I believe God wants us to see. So if you're physically able, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word today? Notice what the scripture says. Now there was a certain man from Ramathium Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah. Can you say Elkanah? First key character of the text, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. Say Hannah, please. Yeah. Very good. Hannah is another key character. And the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all of her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. 
It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. How do you like that? Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I've spoken unto now out of my great concern and provocation. And Eli answered and said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. Listen to the statement. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, returned again to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you've weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull, or some translations say three bulls, and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. They slaughtered the bull. They brought the boy to Eli. She said to him, oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Chapter two. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Listen to this closing statement. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you for who you are. You are good and you are gracious and you are faithful. Right now in these moments, would you speak to our hearts and lives that we respond with the same sort of faith and surrender that we see modeled in Hannah today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. you may be seated this morning. This morning as we begin this new sermon series, instructions included, I wanna to begin today by preaching on the subject, dedicating children to the Lord. 
Here in this passage of scripture, we see a biblical foundation for what we often describe today as child dedication or perhaps even family dedication. It's important to point out from 1 Samuel chapter one that family dedication is not a biblical command or requirement. This is not like the Great Commission where Jesus commands us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, we do see it as an Old Testament principle that is also practiced in the New Testament. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see others who are dedicated to the Lord. And then by the time you get to Luke chapter one, as Jesus is born, the Bible says that Mary and Joseph presented him in the temple. It was a means for parents to publicly commit to raise their children for the Lord and to publicly rejoice in recognizing this child came from God. Well, here is Hannah and here is Elkanah. Their situation wasn't perfect. It was not ideal. In fact, I would say to you in the context of their life situation, it was not even completely God-honoring or biblical. And yet, God was faithful in the midst of it. I believe as we look at 1 Samuel chapter one, there's five key things that we can see of Hannah that should encourage us, bless us, and even challenge us here today. Number one, I want you to see the fact that Hannah prayed for a child. Hannah prayed for a child. The Bible tells us that her husband was a man by the name of Elkanah. Elkanah was a Levite, which meant that part of his role and responsibility was to assist the priests in the various sacrifices they would offer. In other words, Elkanah was a man in many parts because of his job. He served God in some capacities. Like much of the Levites in that day, they were scattered abroad. And, and so we understand he would go at different times to serve the Lord. Not only would Elkanah do this as a Levite, but the Bible says something very interesting about him. Once a year, he would take his entire family all the way to a city called Shiloh for a time of a worship feast. And there in Shiloh, they would worship the Lord. But there was a good man. In many parts of his life, he wanted to honor God. But that had not always been the case. In fact, we understand from scripture that Hannah was likely Elkanah's first wife. He loved her deeply. But the Bible tells us that the Lord closed her womb. She was not able to have children. Why he didn't wait on the Lord, we aren't told. Why he rushed ahead of things and didn't trust God's provision, we don't know. But what we do know is he took a second wife by the name of Panina. And she began to have children. So picture the scene for just a moment. The Bible nowhere encourages multiple wives, nowhere endorses it in any way. In fact, speaks against it. Elkanah was not a perfect man. There were flaws and there were failures. And yet in the midst of the flaws and failures, what I want us to see in this story is the providence of God. Even in that moment where he did his own thing, God would providentially work to accomplish his own purposes and plans for his own glory. A large part of that purpose and plans involves a child by the name of Samuel. The Bible tells us it was that annual time of year as they were going to Shiloh for that time of worship. This should have been a joyous occasion. It was something that everyone looked forward to, but Hannah, not so much. Why? Because Hannah did not have children. In fact, what should have been a time of worship and a time of celebration, a time of joy, and after all, we know of Hannah, she deeply loved God, but it was a time of sorrow. Why? Because Panina would mock her and criticize her. She would look down on her because she had no children, and so Hannah would go to Shiloh, but it was a time of great grief and sorrow for her. The Bible tells us here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that 
She went with them to Shiloh. She enjoyed the meal. She had the fellowship. But as soon as she could, Hannah slipped away. She kind of got away. This is not her running from her sorrows. This is her running to the Lord. This is not her in her pain and discouragement, just trying to flee the situation to get a break. No, she's running directly to the temple for one specific purpose. She's running to God in prayer. I want to remind you this morning that there are times in our life that we experience sorrow and pain and suffering, discouragement, and all sorts of uncertainties and questions. But when those times come, instead of running away from our problems and isolating, we need to take those problems and run directly to the Lord for the purpose of prayer. Hannah's running to God. Why? I think she's practicing a New Testament principle that says literally we are to be casting all of our cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. You may be here today and feel like nobody cares, but God cares. So when you've got those pains and problems, we run to God as Hannah did. As she did, she models for us what it means to pray. So I want you to see the example of prayer. There are several things that Hannah did that should shape the way we pray today. Yes, her prayer was born in sorrow and suffering, but her prayer in this moment provides a phenomenal example for us. Consider this for a moment. She prayed in faith, believing that God could do the impossible. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Many of us in Christian church, oh, absolutely, absolutely, with God, nothing is impossible. Let me ask you a question. How does that impact the way you pray? How does that influence what you ask of God if you truly believe that God can do the impossible? As Hannah goes before God in prayer, she begins to cry out to God and says, oh, Lord of hosts. That term, Lord of hosts, should remind us back to the pastor scripture that we studied last week when the children of Israel, the Bible tells us, were at the Red Sea. They were literally hemmed in. There was a mountain to their left, a mountain to the right, the Egyptian army coming against them, and right in front of them was the Red Sea. If they go back or stay still, they're going to be killed. They don't have time to climb the mountain. The only way forward was through the Red Sea, but if they did, they were going to drown. So what did they do? They cried out to God. They asked God to intervene. And what did God do? He parted the Red Sea and did the impossible. The Bible tells us loud and clear in this moment, she prayed in faith, believing that God had the power to do the impossible because he is the Lord of hosts. That literally means the host of all the angels of heaven, they belong to him. Isaiah 40 says that he's the Lord of hosts. He literally holds the stars in his hand. In other words, when she approached God in prayer, she came knowing that he is the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful God of heaven that there's nothing he can't do. I want to remind us today, there's nothing he can't do. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 21. And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The question is, are we praying in faith, believing that God can do the impossible? Number two, not only did she pray in faith, believing, but she prayed with a surrendered will to the will of God. In other words, she's not praying, oh God, let me have this. No, no, no. She's coming in a position and a posture of humility, submission, and surrender to the will of God. Where do we see that? We see that in her description of herself. Four different occasions in this one prayer, she calls herself a maidservant. Another way to say that would be, if you will, a bond slave in the New Testament. In other words, she's coming to God saying, listen, God, you don't know me anything. 
She doesn't come entitled. Oh, God, I've been such a good girl. Would you let this happen? No, no, no. God, if you do this and I'll do this, and if you do this and I'll do this, and, and God, you owe me. No, no, no. That's not what she does. She's just simply coming. God, I've come as a servant. I don't know what your will is. I don't know what you're going to do, but I trust in you. It's interesting to note, if you go read the prayer of Mary in Luke chapter one, verse 48, she had that same mentality as she came and she gave praise to God and said, God, you've had regard for the humble state of your bond slave. Even Jesus taught us to pray in the garden of Gethsemane as he's sweating great drops of blood. He knew that the task was heavy. He prayed, Father, not as I will, but your will be done. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we're literally to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Hannah prayed with a surrendered will to the will of God. Third, I love this, she prayed fervently. She prayed fervently. The Bible tells us that literally Eli recognized that she continued to pray. You get the picture of someone who's burdened in greed. She's continuing to pray. How often do I need to be reminded of that? Because in my own life, there have been many a times that I begin to pray about something and I pray real hard for five minutes or I pray real hard for a few days. But the idea of praying fervently is this, that we're not giving up, that we're not losing heart. Let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed about something fervently? There's some of you here today on your prayer request on the back of that connection card, most weeks you will give the same prayer request. I, I don't think lightly of that. I commend you for that because you're continuing to pray about it. You're continuing to see it through. You're continuing to trust God in the midst of that. Why? Because as we pray, it's not just merely about the asking. It's about a relationship with God. It's about a conversation with God. God is more concerned not only about answering your prayer, but he's also more concerned about what he's doing in your heart and in your life as you go through the process of seeking him. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through eight. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. The context of those words of asking, seeking and knocking is continuous. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Oftentimes with my children, I will remind them just bring your questions. Don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind a question. You ask a question as much as you want to. Why? Because I want to make sure they understand. God says, listen, you keep asking, you keep seeking, keep knocking. And as we do, I want you to see all the four things she prayed wholeheartedly. I love this image. The Bible says that as she's praying, she's weeping bitterly. And as she's praying, she reaches a point, I think of such emotion and of such grief as she pours her heart out to the Lord. That when Eli the priest sees her, all he sees is her lips moving, but he can't hear what she's saying. And he concludes that she's drunk. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if that would bless me or not, right? I'm just trying to honor the Lord. I'm coming pouring my heart out to the Lord. And this self-righteous guy over here is accusing me of being drunk, but she hadn't been drinking. What we see here is a picture of a woman in this moment whose soul is so deeply grieved, whose heart is so greatly burdened that she's praying with everything inside of her. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed with everything inside of you? I mean, your heart, your soul, your emotions, everything being poured out to God. John Bunyan said it this way. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. 
powerful thought, isn't it? Ever been so deeply burdened over a situation that you poured your heart out to God, you wept before the Lord, but in doing so, you got to a point where, frankly, you didn't even know how else to pray. That's kind of the image that we have here. But the wonderful promise of God's word is that if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, who in those moments fulfills Romans chapter 8. The Bible says this, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. That's a great point to say, amen. The Holy Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. A powerful example of prayer, but I want you to see, secondly, the effect of prayer. How does prayer affect us? Yes, when we pray and pour our heart out to God, yes, it touches the heart of God. It often moves the hand of God. But notice what happens next in this pastor scripture. See, the eyes of the world would look at Hannah in her situation and say, oh, poor Hannah. Her husband's giving his time, attention, and affection to another. Poor Hannah. Poor Hannah. The other woman in his life is mocking her and criticizing her. Poor Hannah. Poor Hannah. Even the high priest thinks that she's drunk. But Hannah was not wallowing in this moment of misery. She's looking to the Lord. She knows who she is. She knows the God that she loves and serves. She knows that God has all power and all authority. She knows there's nothing he can't do. So here's what she does. She comes to God and she begins to pray and she pours her heart out to him. Notice the effect of the prayer in verse 18. She went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Think of that for a moment. She had every reason to be hurt. She had every reason to be in pain. She had every reason even to question God. God, why are you not allowing this good thing in my life? But now that she's turned her attention towards the Lord, now that she's cast all of her cares upon him, knowing that he cares for her, now that she's come to the Lord and said, Lord, your will be done, not mine, she's able to leave. And the Bible says her face is no longer sad. Why? Because she has peace. She doesn't know what God is going to do. She didn't know all the answers to why. Her circumstance hasn't even changed. But what has changed is this. She's given it to the Lord and she's left it in his hands and she's trusted that his will is best and will be accomplished. Can I remind us this morning that this is a truth and an illustration that's given of Philippians chapter four, verses six through seven, where the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Everybody say Nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many of us would rather struggle through our issues than we would have the peace of God that we would have if only we'd bring it to the Lord in faith and trust in him. She prayed for a child. Number two, Hannah promised to dedicate her child to the Lord. If you're still with me, would you say, I am? So here she is. She's asking of the Lord something that seems humanly impossible to this point, but she also makes a promise. Lord, if you will give me this son, I will dedicate him to you. I will surrender him to you that he will be raised according to your plans and your purposes. In other words, this morning, we must not ignore or avoid the reason of why she asked for a son. Did she ask for a son for her own pleasure or purposes? No. 
Did she ask for a son so that Panina would finally leave her alone and the enemy would be silent, so to speak? No. Did she ask for a son so that she could fulfill her wildest dreams of motherhood? No. Did she ask for a son so that she might live her dreams for her child? No. Here's why she asked for a son. Lord, I'm asking for a son that I might dedicate him to you, that you might be glorified through him. In other words, as she's dedicating this child and committing to do so, she is saying, Lord, I'm gonna set him apart for you. I'm gonna commit him to you. I'm gonna do everything in my power to see that his life is lived for you. She literally says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. He's never gonna look like the Billy Ray Cyrus mullet, okay? He's never gonna have a razor on his head. This is a Nazarite vow. This was something that was done of the Nazarites who were taking a vow to be fully devoted to the Lord in their life. And she's saying, Lord, I'm gonna thank you for this gift by giving this gift back to you. In fact, so clearly was this promise the case that when she goes home and the Lord remembers her and touches her womb and that child is conceived and when the child finally is born, she names him Samuel, which literally means heard of God, asked of God. She wanted his name to be a constant reminder that she prayed for this child, God heard her prayer, and God in his grace and his mercy answered that prayer. What I want you to see today is loud and clear, and that is that Though Hannah's situation was not perfect, and though Hannah's situation was not ideal, and yes, in Hannah's family structure, there were some dysfunction, and there were some challenges, and there were some hurts along the way, God was faithful to give a child, and she was faithful to dedicate him back to the Lord. Maybe it's easy to say, well, of course, Pastor Matthew, God was involved with the birth of this prophet, this child that would become a prophet by the name of Samuel. God was involved in this, but may I remind us today that God is involved in the birth of every child? Every single child, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of the sinful situation or the healthy situation, every child, the Bible says, has a certain reality true of God. Three things I want you to see about this. First, every child is planned by God Second, every child is the product of God's handiwork. And third, every child is a present from God. Every child is planned by God. Every child is the product of God's handiwork. And every child is a present from God. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says it this way. God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God says, Jeremiah, before I even formed you in the womb, before I gave you that name, I want you to know I appointed you. I had a plan for you to be a prophet even to the nation to proclaim the truth about me. Yes, Jeremiah, I planned you. The reality is, is that every child is planned by God. This truth became so personal to me in in 2003. Many of you have heard the story where Heather and I got married June 21st of 2003. We got married and we had the idea that we were gonna get married. I was starting seminary. She was finishing her undergraduate degree. And our plan was to wait three years before we decided to try to have children. And so that was our plan. I'd been in seminary classes at that time for about a month, which means we had been married for about somewhere between eight and 12 weeks. And I came home one day from my classes in the middle of the day in our apartment and Heather was on the couch sound asleep. And I thought, man, That's very abnormal to be sleeping at noon, but 
Maybe she doesn't feel good. The next day I go to classes, I come back, and guess who I see sleeping on the couch? Heather sleeping, and I'm thinking, man, Lord, is she lazy? What is the deal, you know? I'm kidding, I didn't say that. Three days in a row, I came home in the middle of the day, and Heather was sleeping, and I knew something's not right. Sure enough, we soon found out that she was pregnant. Can I just be honest and confess to you? We were broke. I mean, we were living off of ramen and love. Just, just how it was. Like, <laughs> seriously, we could have written the country music song. I'm just telling you, like, that's what we had. And, 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 and I, I'm like, man, I, I, I'm in my first semester of seminary. She literally has the whole year to go to finish her undergraduate degree. And I will never forget when she told me, Matthew, we're pregnant. Like, in my mind, I was like, this is great. Like, say the right thing. Say the right thing. And I was like... Heather, this is great. <laughs> this, this is really great. You know, like, I kept saying it, trying to convince myself. Because in my heart, I remember thinking, like, what are we going to do? We can't, we can't even, we're barely feeding ourselves. How in the world are we going to do this? This makes no sense at all. It was this reality that every child is planned by God, whether you had a plan or not. But see, see, what happened in that moment was it really wasn't about our financial paycheck. It really wasn't about the seminary education. It really wasn't about the surprise. It was really a matter of, are you gonna trust me or not? It became a major thing where God used that to strengthen my faith and help me to rely on him. The reality is God has planned every child. Every child is the product of God's handiwork. In fact, when the Bible says that God formed us in the womb, that word form is literally the Hebrew word that's used to describe the creative work of a potter as he molds and shapes a vessel. It's the same exact Hebrew word that's used in the book of Genesis when God reaches down into the dust of the earth and he forms man. The same miraculous work that took place in creation in the garden takes place in the womb of a woman when God is creating and forming that child. David said it this way in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. But number three, every child is a present from God. Every child. Doesn't matter, red and yellow, black and white. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the color. It doesn't matter the situation, whether it was honoring God or sinful. Every child is a gift from God. Psalm 127, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Yes, your child is an amazing gift from God. But so too are the children that may not have a mom or a dad. So too are the children that maybe weren't so expected, planned, or prayed for. They're a gift to parents. They're a gift to the community. They're a gift to the church. They're a gift to the world. Because within them, God has plans and purpose for, purposes for which he designed them for. Number three, Hannah prepared the child for the Lord's service. Yes, she prayed for a child and she promised the Lord, Lord, I will dedicate him to you that he might live for you. But third, Hannah prepared the child for the Lord's service. We see this largely in verses 21 through 23. Now, I wanna be very careful in what I say. The Bible does not give us a step-by-step -step plan for how she prepared Samuel for his future. We don't know that. 
So I don't want to state something that is extra biblical. However, we do have in this passage of scripture a very clear picture of a woman who who honors God, a woman who lives by faith, a woman who has a vision for the future, and a woman who's very intentional in her actions. You put all those things together, we can understand with reality, she's not just going through the motions. She has a vision in mind. She has a plan in mind. She has a purpose in mind. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that without a vision, the people perish or the people are unrestrained. I believe based upon this scripture that Hannah had a clear vision of the fact that God was going to do something extraordinary with Samuel, but she also had a clear vision for the fact she had a limited time with him. So with that limited time, she was gonna be intentional to pour into her son. Verses 21 through 23 remind us that it was the time for the annual trip to Shiloh where they were gonna go to worship the Lord and give sacrifices. And the Bible says that Elkanah went to her and said, listen, it's time for the family to go. But she's paused and said, no, I can't go this time. I'm not gonna go to Shiloh this time. I'm gonna stay here until the child is weaned. And when he's weaned, I'm gonna take him to the temple. We'll dedicate him. And there he will live forever. And the Bible says that Elkanah affirmed this and assured her that this was right and good. What we have is our picture of a woman with a clear vision and direction for how she's going to pour into her child. Now we hear that word weaned in our culture today. We think of a nursing baby. And maybe we think, oh, that's cute. Maybe, maybe she's gonna nur- uh, wean him at six months or 12 months or 18 months, maybe according to what we would assume is kosher in our culture. But in that culture, like it or not, laugh at it or not, They did not wean a child until the child was three years old. That's the reason the bull they brought was three years old or the Bible, someone will say there were three bulls. Here's the reality. Here's what she's recognizing. She's basically saying, Elkanah, I can't go with you right now. I've got three years with this child. I've got three years to love on him. I've got three years to pray over him. I've got three years to pour into him. I've got this time and when he's weaned, then I'm gonna dedicate him completely to the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us how she taught him. It doesn't tell us all that she poured into him over those three years. But it is interesting to note that Hannah, who was a woman of deep faith, who was devoted to God in prayer, who was noted for that in the Old Testament, it is interesting to note that Samuel, by the time he was a grown man, of the many things he'd be known for, one of the things he'd be known for is that he was a man of deep faith and a deep prayer life. It's also interesting to note that Hannah in her situation in life had largely been despised and she had been looked down upon, but she stood firm in her faith and firm in her conviction about who God is and she did what was right even when it was unpopular. It is interesting to note that Samuel, this little boy, grew up to be a man who at times was despised and rejected and at times even mocked along the way, but he stood firm in his faith, firm in his conviction of who God is and who God's called him to be. How she taught and how she modeled, I don't know. But we get the impression of scripture that she was preparing the child daily for the service that he would give unto the Lord. The fact of the matter is today, you cannot underestimate, you cannot overestimate what God can do with a praying parent who is intentional about shepherding their child. Even at the youngest of ages, it is amazing how receptive they are, what they are learning, and what they are learning from your example as you provide for them a solid biblical foundation. I personally believe that her actions provided the basis for all that God would do in calling Samuel for his own glory and purposes. Number three, Hannah presented the child 
to the Lord. Here she is nursing Samuel. And those three years, if you're a parent, you know this is true, they flew by. Three years have now passed. Samuel is now weaned. Hannah's likely in that stage. I don't know if you've been a parent or not, but when your child's starting to become more independent, you find yourself regularly remembering when they weren't so independent. Can I tell you, with a, having, having four, all of which it will be between seventh grade and freshman year of college next fall, it's special, it's wonderful, it's awesome. There are some days that I'm like, man, I just wish I could hold them in my arms. They're not getting so big they can always hold me in their arms, you know, like it's a little different day. I'm sure in this moment, she knows the time is near. I'm sure she, she's remembering that, that, that cute little birthmark, how soft his skin was. She can remember when he had no hair at all, you know. Finally, the time comes. What does she do? She goes to the temple. She goes publicly to the temple. And I believe she does for several reasons. First, going public in the temple provides an opportunity for others to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, she goes to Eli the priest and she, she hasn't been here now almost four years. Hey, Eli, I, I know you may not remember. I look a little different. I, hopefully I don't look drunk today, okay? I, I was the one here praying four years ago and I prayed for God to give me this son. And Eli, I want you to see, God did the impossible. He worked a miracle. This is the child that God gave me. See, her moment of doing this provided an opportunity for Eli to rejoice in the Lord, for anybody else in the temple to recognize, man, look at what God's done. He opened her womb. He gave a child. What a gift. It was a moment of, of rejoicing. But it also in that moment provided a sense of community and accountability. See, others could hear that testimony. You remember when Hannah prayed? Remember when she poured her heart out to God? Remember when she was so burdened and so moved and she prayed so wholeheartedly and look what God did. It brings about a sense of accountability in our own hearts and lives. Do I live by faith? Do I pray wholeheartedly? Do I trust God for the impossible? Here she is coming in the temple in this moment, rejoicing in the Lord, providing this opportunity of community. What is she doing? She's presenting him to the Lord. Now, in that moment, it was a unique situation. When she was saying, I dedicate him to the Lord, she was literally entrusting Samuel to Eli's care for Eli and his sons to be the ones who would equip him and train him from three years old all the way to adulthood. And when you go back and study Eli's family and their major sin and dysfunction, you realize this was a major, major action of faith. So Pastor, what are you saying in that? What I'm ultimately saying in that is that God was leading her to be obedient and she was willing to trust him, even in a difficult situation. Now, I wanna encourage you today, if you've seen parents who have gone through family dedication today, they're not leaving their children at the church today, okay? Be encouraged by that, at least not intentionally, okay? She was simply publicly saying, God has given me this child. I recognize it as a gift from him and I'm honoring God by raising this child to be who God wants him to be. I think some of us in our culture, especially as parents, need to hear that because we often have our own hopes and dreams and thoughts of what our children ought to be and do. But I wanna remind you, that child belongs to God. 
for his glory and his purposes. Samuel was, Hannah represented that in her dedication to Samuel. But finally, if you're still with him, would you say amen? amen? Finally, Hannah praised the Lord. Hannah praised the Lord. She brings the child to the temple, publicly gives God praise, dedicates him to the Lord, the Bible says, and he worshiped the Lord there. And then it skips over into chapter two. Let me ask you a question. How would you respond in this moment if you were in Hannah's shoes? I mean, think of that. For just, how would you respond if you were in Hannah's shoes? She's literally brought her three-year-old child to the temple. She's dedicated him to the Lord. She's basically surrendered him for the Lord's glory and purposes. And now it's time to leave. Can, can I just be honest and confess with you, having an 18-year-old that in about three months, we're gonna load up in a vehicle, drive to a college campus, say, I love you, see you soon. It's not a final goodbye, but we're gonna say goodbye from the normal life that we've known for these 18 years. Can I just already tell you, I'm already getting a little bit emotional about it. I'm totally excited for him. He's ready. I'm hoping I'm ready, you know, like, we'll see. I, I gotta confess that when that happens, there's probably gonna be more than a few tears when we go to leave that college campus. We would think in this moment, Hannah's gonna be weeping and she's gonna be grieving and so sad over this thing. But the reality is, she wasn't. Because she knew that this child was a gift from God, because she honored God with her obedience, she was able to trust God with the results of that. In fact, so much so was that the case that instead of weeping, she began to praise. She began to rejoice in the goodness of God. Listen to what she says. The Bible tells us loud and clear in chapter two, verses one and two. Hannah said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, this is a picture of strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. I rejoice, God, in your salvation. Listen to this. Because there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one set apart like him. There's no one that can do the things that he does. Goes on in verse two. There is no one besides you, listen to this, nor is there any rock like our God. There's no rock like you, God. There's all these issues in the culture and all these persecutions that have come against me. And there's all these ups and downs and these roller coasters, these hills and valleys. There's all these different things. But God, you are my rock. You are my hope. My faith is fixed in you. The reality is many of us, we all live in a world today that's fallen and it's broken and everything is so fragile. And we often, many of us, we go through all these circumstances and storms and we find ourselves back and forth like the tide that's coming and going. And we find ourselves on this hill of emotions of ups and downs and hills and valleys. And we find ourselves in the midst of that wondering, what's going on? And I think what God is calling us back to is the simple reality that he alone is the rock. He alone is the firm foundation, not only for our homes, but for our lives. Hannah stood firm on that rock because she found through her experience that there is no rock like God, which is incredible. Because when you begin to study the life of that little boy named Samuel that grew up to be a man, there were so many times that God called him to do things that were unpopular and even by the world's perspective, unwise. 
And yet he stood firm, he stood true. Why? Because his faith and his hope was not in his ability, but it was fixed on the same rock. Here's my question today. Is your faith founded, anchored in the rock, Jesus Christ? Hannah was able to experience that personally. Her son, years later, would experience that personally. The wonderful news is by faith, every single one of us can make sure our lives are founded upon the rock. Storms come, trials come, uncertainties come. But when your faith is fixed in Jesus, you find there is no rock like our God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning and for this time together. Thank you for the way that you speak to our hearts and our lives. I pray, God, that you be glorified in our response of obedience today. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.